This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And this afternoon, a top expert at the World Health Organization said this coronavirus may never go away, that it might simply join the various viruses that kill people every year, and we all must remain on alert and stay, stay the course. Plus, a dire economic warning coming from the Federal Reserve chairman today, calling the pandemic the, quote, biggest shock our economy has felt in modern times, unquote, predicting a multi-year recession if there's not more help from Congress and the White House. This as food prices are surging and schools are debating whether to open in the fall. Now, the leading model from the University of Washington has once again raised its projections by 10,000 projected deaths to 147,000 people in this country dying from coronavirus. And that's just by August 4th. In part, the modelers have upped the death toll, projected death toll, because of relaxing social distancing measures happening all over the country. As CNN's Erica Hill reports now, while the number of new cases is thankfully trending down overall nationwide, mayors of major cities, including Washington, D.C., are concerned about a surge in new infections and have, in fact, extended stay-at-home orders. Shopping, restaurants, the beach. Signs of pre-COVID life returning as experts warn the virus itself may be here to stay. This virus may become just another endemic virus in our communities, and this virus may never go away. This picturesque college campus will be quiet in September. It is the right call. California's state university system sticking with distance learning this fall, impacting nearly half a million students. We found that in order to maintain social distancing guidelines, we would have to reduce the capacity of our classrooms uh, to 25 percent of their normal levels. For school-age children, the answer on when and how they'll return to the classroom isn't yet clear. Probably smaller classrooms, more distancing, um, teacher probably wearing a mask. I have 39 kids in my classroom one year. How are you going to socially distance 39 kids? The CDC, meantime, preparing to alert doctors to a new inflammatory illness in children, possibly linked to COVID-19, which can present weeks after the virus. We just have to remember, we, ha- we have more to learn about the virus than we have yet learned. New York State is now investigating more than 100 cases in school-aged children. New coronavirus cases in Georgia and South Carolina, two of the first states to reopen, mostly flat over the past week, while South Dakota is posting some of the highest spikes, along with Arkansas and Delaware. New Orleans, once a major hotspot, allowing some businesses to return this weekend. Restaurants told to keep customers' contact information for 21 days to aid with potential contact tracing as the push for a measured approach continues. Opening up prematurely just sets us up for big outbreaks, which will force us to shut down again. Washington, D.C. today extending its stay-at-home order until June 8th. Colorado's tourism office asking out-of-state visitors to stay home. Arizona and Florida announcing professional sports can return to their states. While new CNN polling shows Americans are split on whether players should suit up. As for fans, new information about how cheering could increase the spread of COVID-19. If you're yelling and screaming and supporting your team, those people in, I guess, the spray zone of your voice, um, you know, you're putting them in danger. Outside St. Louis, an experiment in socially distant baseball. It's weird. Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel normal. 
disinfectant in the dugout, distant umpires and fans. Weird, but worth it. Jake, we're also getting some new information today about this rapid test that the White House has touted, this Abbott test, which can give results in, in about 15 minutes. Researchers at NYU's Langone School of Medicine say that they found that those tests are often missing some positive results. Now, I do want to point out that this research has not been reviewed by outside scientists or published in a medical journey, Abbott journal, rather. Abbott Fritz part says it is reviewing uh, those results from the researchers at NYU. I should note the research did find, though, that in terms of the negative tests, it had a much better success rate. That was about 98.5% for that test, Jake. All right, Erica Hill, thank you so much. Joining me now is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, what's your read on this new research on these Abbott rapid tests, which the White House has been using? Uh, and these tests apparently are, are missing some cases, some positives. Yeah, I mean, this this latest research, which uh, is, is, is not peer-reviewed, Abbott's got to look at this research uh, still, they say, but 48% of, of cases were missed, 48% false negative. So that means, you know, out of 100 people, uh, uh, 48 of them were told they don't have the virus when, in fact, they did. That would be obviously significant. You know, Jake, you know, we've been doing a lot of reporting on this. Uh, previous studies showed 15% false negative. Another study showed 25% false negative. Uh, when we reached out to Abbott about this before, they said there was a problem with one of the uh, one of the mediums used to transport the swabs. Now they're saying, look, maybe the test wasn't being done correctly at NYU where the study was performed. We'll have to check into this, but that that's obviously a, a huge consideration. As we talk about the number of tests, we have to constantly be asking not only uh, the number, but how accurate are they? How quickly can people get results as well? Those things make a huge difference. This one's quick. But if it's not accurate, that's not going to be helpful. And Sanjay, President Trump has been saying that this virus is just going to uh, eventually disappear. But the World Health Organization said today that this virus might become endemic, essentially never going away, just having different um, outbreaks. Uh, how likely do you think it is that, that it becomes endemic? And, and if that happens, if we don't have a vaccine, what do we do? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, you look at a virus like HIV, which is a very different virus, obviously. And, you know, after decades, uh, we still don't have a vaccine and it's essentially become endemic. Uh, you look at other coronaviruses like SARS and MERS, and they sort of did wither away with time. And we're not exactly sure why that happened. Uh, there is the possibility that we get herd immunity. So the virus is still out there, but we essentially are inoculated against it. I did some calculations, Jake, on that. If, if a million people a week became infected in the United States, it would take about four years to establish herd immunity. So that, that takes a long time. Uh, and then obviously the vaccine uh, would make a difference. So we, we don't know. I mean, it could become like flu where it becomes migratory and seasonal as well. We're just not sure with this virus. It's not behaving in, in, in conventional ways. But I don't know that we, we know enough yet to say whether it would become endemic or, or not. And because there's so little testing uh, compared to the size of the population and so little, so little antibody testing, we have no idea of how right. widespread it is. Um, Sanjay, the CDC is expected to put out uh, an alert about the potential impact of COVID-19 on children with, with what appears to be a rare inflammatory condition. We've been discussing this for several weeks now. Uh, the governor of New York said they have more than 100 cases in that state. Do you think that this will become more widespread? 
You know, I, I don't think so, Jake. We have been, um, you know, digging into this for some time. There was an alert that went out in the UK a couple of weeks ago telling hospitals to be on the alert, uh, alert for this. Now we're getting a similar sort of alert here in the United States. You know, I, I started talking to my sources in Asia soon after that UK alert came out. Interestingly, they didn't see uh, a lot of cases of this Kawasaki-like syndrome. They're calling it PIMS now, Pediatric Inflammatory Multi-Organ Syndrome. They weren't seeing it over there. So, so why are we seeing it in the UK and the United States? Um, is it that there's some genetic predisposition? Why are we seeing it four to five months now after you know patients were identified here in the United States? I think we don't know the answers to that, but I think it does suggest that maybe this isn't going to be that widespread. Doctors certainly are on the lookout for it now, um, but there's a lot of you know uh, things that can be confused with it. You know, fever, rash, things like that that parents should be on the lookout for. But so far, thankfully, it does not appear to be that widespread. We hear from doctors about so many other unusual symptoms that affect not just the lungs. Obviously, we've heard all about the respiratory problems, um, but problems with heart, with blood flow, with toes, problems with the brain, problems with kidneys. This originally was viewed as a respiratory disease. It's obviously much worse than that. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. Uh, just today I was having a conversation with a microbiologist about this. Uh, the way that this virus seems to enter the body, the types of cells that it binds to when it comes into the body are certain types of cells that are present in areas besides the lungs. They're present on blood vessels. They're present around the heart. Is this virus somehow getting in the blood? Because the blood, obviously, a, a common denominator between all these places. But it's still hard to explain why people would have isolated loss of smell. That's it. They get loss of smell. That's the only symptom they ever have. Or chillblains, as you were talking about, these lesions on the, on the feet and the toes. Why is that? Blood clots. Uh, the blood itself may be the common denominator here, and I think that's where a lot of investigators are starting to look. It still seems to be a respiratory virus in terms of how it's transmitted, person to person, off of surfaces, as we know, touching a surface and then touching your own, your own face. But after it gets into the body, it does seem to behave differently for coronaviruses. It's different than SARS and MERS. And, and, and the blood may be the common denominator. But again, researchers don't know for sure. The potential treatments, the antivirals, trying to stop replication and stopping the virus from entering the cells could still be the same sorts of treatments if we can develop those. And Sanjay, nine states are currently trending up in terms of coronavirus cases. 19 states are holding steady. 22 are trending down, um, as you see in the map that we're showing right now. The, the upda- updated model from the University of Washington Uh, now projects 147,000 people in the U.S. will lose their lives to coronavirus by August 4th. That's stunning. Yeah, I mean, it it really is. And, you know, potentially 100,000 people by the end of this month, Jake, by Memorial Day. So it's... um, it's clearly related to increased mobility and the projected increased mobility of people as these states start to reopen. I mean, there's no, there's no secret here. There's no, there's no magic here. The virus is still out there. It's very contagious. Um, you know, the good news, Jake, as we've talked about all along, is that you know, still the majority of people who become infected are still not likely to get that ill. The problem is, as we've learned over and over again, is we don't know for certain who's likely to become ill. And you can still be uh, someone who spreads the disease. So, you know, I, I know that people talk about risk and I'm willing to take the risk, but this is not the same sort of risk as other things. Uh, you, you're not only risking your own health, you're risking the health of those around you. 
All right, Sanjay, thank you so much. Be sure to tune in tomorrow night for a CNN Town Hall. Coronavirus Facts and Fears is hosted by Sanjay and Anderson Cooper. That's tomorrow night at 8 p.m. right here on CNN. Coming up next, will kids go back to school in the fall? What about college kids? We'll talk to the head of a major university system as another one cancels in-person classes through the fall. Plus, taking one for the team, that's what one volunteer is calling it, signing up to be purposely infected with the novel coronavirus, all in the hopes of finding a vaccine. We'll bring you that story. Stay with us. Schools out for summer, schools out forever. In our national lead, the California State University system is canceling in-person classes for the fall, impacting nearly half a million students across 23 campuses in that state. This is the first large American university to move classes almost exclusively online. Canada's McGill University and the universities of Ottawa and Montreal announced the same today. This comes as other schools in the U.S. insist they will find a way to bring students back to campus. We're joined now by Jim Henderson. He's the president of the University of Louisiana system, which includes the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, the University of New Orleans, and Grambling State University. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Jim. I appreciate it. Let me run through some of the things that I'm just wondering about. You're planning to resume in-person classes this fall across all nine of your campuses. It's about 92,000 students. Uh, Are you going to test all of the students and faculty and employees? You know, uh, Jake, we, we've got to develop plans or, that, that meet the needs of the university communities at all nine of our institutions. Of course, testing will be a component of that. Uh, our board will meet at the end of this month to uh, to develop a framework all of our system institutions will follow that puts the health and safety of students, faculty, and communities, and our staff as a paramount concern while we continue the education mission of our students. Uh, testing, identification, and, and rapid response uh, when an outbreak is detected is or actually absolutely going to be a part of that plan. Uh, and, and I think you'll see there's some some great similarities between what we're doing and what my friend Tim White is doing in California. Um, will students be asked to wear masks? Uh, you know, that we're going to follow the guidance of, of our health officials, of gubernatorial regulations and, and other policy making work. I imagine most will be wearing masks for some time. In addition to having increased hygiene recommendations, uh, incre- increased sanitation procedures for our, our fa- uh, for our staff on campuses, uh, I think you'll see social distancing become part of the new norm for us going forward. And you're right. I think you'll see a lot of masks in classrooms. It's hard to imagine social distancing in college, to be honest. I mean, so much of the, of the college experience is packed classrooms, packed parties, uh, packed uh, buildings. What about football games in the fall? W- will you have fans in the bleachers? Listen, it, it, we're in Louisiana, and you know how much football is part of our culture. And so I, I hope that we have a return to, to uh, collegiate ac- athletics. It's a very important part of the the experience, but only if it is safe. It can be done in a safe way, a way that protects the athletes, that protects the coaches and all of the support staff that's necessary to, to, to uh, have an athletic competition and certainly the spectators. You know, we continue to learn more and more about this virus, how it's transmitted. You've done a great job on this show keeping us educated and far, as far as that is concerned. I think we'll learn more in the coming months. Uh, but that, that time is getting close where we have to make some very uh, definitive decisions. And again, focused on health and safety of our communities. What do you do if a student 
or more to the point, really, a professor, right? Because people who are older, 50, 60, they're more vulnerable to this statistically. But let's say there's a student who has a pre-existing health condition or is just worried or a professor who says, look, I'm 70 years old. I'm worried. And they want a remote learning option or a remote teaching option. Will you provide it? You know, that's that's such a great question, because we talk about our protocols. We talk about things in the aggregate, but we have to bring these down to the individual level. So when you have a a student that that is of a more vulnerable population, how are you accommodating their learning needs? for a faculty member, ensuring that we're accommodating their needs as well. And, you know, we've got a, we use technology quite well within our system. In fact, our faculty did the, uh, the Herculean task of moving in about six days, 92,000 students from traditional instruction to online instruction in, in the spring. This For this fall, we'll be able to do some planning ahead of time. So those faculty that do want to teach online and it's, and it's conducive to, the, to their uh, uh, the discipline or the class that they're teaching, we're going to accommodate that and ensure that we're meeting their needs in addition to meeting the needs of students. So you've got hybrid approaches that you can implement. Uh, utilizing technology to deliver instruction is something that we've become expert at. It's just applying that now to a real-world crisis situation. So, Mr. Henderson, if, even if you do everything right, and, and I hope you do, I hope you achieve everything you need to, I hope the students are happy, but even if you do, the odds are someone's going to get sick. Someone is going to get novel coronavirus with a, with a student body of 92,000. What do you do? What's the response of the university? Well, so you have to have outbreak protocols in place that you can manage positive cases. You can identify them. You can isolate them. You can do contact uh, tracing. All of those plans have got to be in place before you can open your campus back up. Now, again, I told you time is running short. That's why by the end of May... All of our campuses will have their, their plans that they'll put in place in front of our board for approval within a framework of standard protocols across our state. And then we'll continue to monitor them and within the guidelines put forth by science. You know, science is the way that we beat this virus and it's the way we beat the next pandemic. We've got to follow the, the guidance of the experts. And what do you do about parties? What do you do about fraternity parties or dorm parties? Do you just ban them and send in the campus police? What, what happens? I think there's going to be uh, significant restrictions on those types of, of, of engagements. And I remember my days in college that social distancing would have uh, uh, would have been very difficult for us. We wouldn't even have been able to envision it. Yeah. Well, look, we've had Indeed. now several months um, to socialize this. And uh, I think we're informing students in a very important way. We're helping them understand that the needs to engage in these safer uh, behaviors. And we'll have some certainly some restrictions that are enforced. Uh, enforcement is going to be key. We've seen this quite often uh, in other social activities with uh, uh, Greek organizations that do add great value to our, our campuses. Sometimes just giving the, the guidelines are not significant enough. You have to be able to enforce them. We'll have those mechanisms in place. All right. Jim Henderson, thank you so much. Best of luck to you, your students, your faculty and your employees. Appreciate it. Jake, thank you very much. He was a top medical expert in the Trump administration. Now he is planning to tell Congress that the administration was not ready for the pandemic and much, much more. What else Dr. Bright plans to say? That's next. The White House just selected a leader for its, quote, warp speed coronavirus vaccine effort. 
The announcement comes as an ousted Trump administration official, Dr. Rick Bright, issued a dire warning about how bad this pandemic could get this fall if the U.S. does not step up our preparation. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins me now live from the White House with this breaking news. And Caitlin, let's start with this breaking news. Who is this new vaccine czar? Yeah, so Jake, this is for Operation Warp Speed, this Manhattan Project-style type effort that the administration has come up with to try to speed up a vaccine production that is so obviously needed for the coronavirus. And they've now tapped a director to helm that effort. That's Monsef Slawi. He's a prominent researcher, head of GSK for a while. So that is obviously why he was picked for this role. They've been interviewing a few directors over the last few weeks. But then they've also picked a retired four-star general, Gus Perna. He's was head of Army Material Command, basically, uh, is the reason he was suited for this role, many people in the administration said. And so those two individuals are going to be the ones who are really heading up this effort, though we're also told that the HHS Secretary, Alex Azar, is also expected to be involved, of course, as well as Dr. Anthony Fauci and a slew of others. And so it's notable that the administration, they're looking ahead, working on this project that there's been a lot of excitement about inside the administration, as this other former vaccine agency head, Rick Bright, is getting ready to testify on Capitol Hill tomorrow to not only talk about the efforts that his office, he believes, was slowed in its efforts early on, but Jake, he's also going to offer a warning about what's to come if the federal government doesn't step up and take efforts that he and these other experts have been recommending, many of those including things like a national testing strategy, which you've seen lawmakers call for as well lately. And Caitlin, uh, tell us about Mike Bowen. He is a businessman from Texas. He's also testifying tomorrow. Uh, I read uh, Dr. Bright's whistleblower complaint. It includes uh, descriptions and emails from Bowen from January offering to help manufacture millions of N95 masks that were barely needed. Yeah, he's an executive at a company here in the United States that makes these masks. And basically, if you look at some of the emails that he had with Rick Bright early on back in January, he's talking about calls that he was getting from some people at the Department of Homeland Security asking about masks. He was trying to give the federal government a heads up, he says, about what he saw as a demand that was coming down the pipeline. And, Jake, it's notable because he's someone who says he's warned about too much dependency on foreign supply chains for some time now, mainly China. And in these emails with Rick Bright, that he's expected to talk about tomorrow. Um, this executive, Mike Bowen, says things like, hey, we're getting interest from China, from Hong Kong, from several of these other countries wanting to know more about getting these masks. And obviously, he would want to prioritize them for the United States, but he wasn't hearing a lot of interest, he said, from the federal government. Yeah, Dr. Bright trying to push up and let people in the administration know about these masks and apparently, according to him, not getting much of a response. Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Appreciate that breaking news. Coming up next, it's risky, perhaps even deadly, but volunteers are signing up to try to find a coronavirus vaccine. You're going to be infected with something for which there is no treatment for at this time. Right. Right now, there are actually thousands of people around the world who have volunteered to be exposed to the novel coronavirus on purpose. They're called Challenge Vaccine Volunteers. And as CNN's Drew Griffin reports for us now, they're part of a program to try to speed up a cure for the rest of us. He donated a kidney last summer. Now, A.B. Rorig is ready to medically volunteer again this time as a human guinea pig in a vaccine trial designed to infect volunteers with the virus 
the world has never known. Just like the nurses and the doctors on the front line, you know, I'm willing to take some risks to myself if it means that we can move through this as a, as a nation and as a world. He's 20 years old, lives in New York, has seen what the pandemic can do and has signed up online to be a volunteer in a potential COVID-19 human challenge vaccine trial. Unlike other vaccine trials, in a challenge trial, a group of volunteers would first be injected with a potential vaccine, and a second control group would be injected with a placebo. After allowing sufficient time for the volunteers who got the vaccine to hopefully build up immunities, it's all challenged. All the volunteers, those with and those without the vaccine candidate, are intentionally contaminated with coronavirus. Risky? potentially even deadly. Yes, all of that. But it also might be a quicker path to an actual vaccine for the rest of us. This is designed to get some people sick. That's right. The intention is to make uh, some people at least infected. Mark Lipsitch, Harvard epidemiologist, is one of the scientists whose idea of using a challenge vaccine for COVID-19 is now gaining interest from the World Health Organization. This could save months of the time required to evaluate a vaccine. The goal is to do the fastest responsible uh, and uh, scientifically valid way of evaluating the vaccine. Multiple vaccines could be tried at the same time. Controls put in place for proper medical care for all the volunteers. And by selecting only young, healthy adults, Lipsitch says the chances of someone dying is extremely low. But it is not zero, and that's why this is an altruistic act uh, to, to volunteer for this. It's not just the risk. It is the unknown risk, says Professor Robert Reed at the University of Southampton in the U.K. He's in favor of the idea, but insists there would need to be full disclosure. This case is different. We're not able to quantify the risk to the volunteer. And when we take informed consent from them, we'll, we will have to say to them that we cannot say exactly what is going to happen to them. You're going to be infected with something for which there is no treatment for at this time. Right. Does that give you pause? It certainly gives me pause. Um, and I don't want to be naive um, or arrogant. Um, and I don't want to hide myself from the fact that there is a, a serious, not at all trivial risk to me doing this. Despite the risk, 16,000 people from more than 100 countries have already signed an online form saying they're interested in becoming volunteers. That includes U.S. Army veteran, businessman, husband and father of four, John Gentle of Alabama. Yes, I am putting more people directly related to me at a greater risk if something were to go wrong. But I feel like the risk is low. So far, the challenge vaccine trial is hypothetical. But John Gentle, A.B. Roaring and 16,000 others say they are ready, if needed, to take the risk if it means they can be part of ending the COVID-19 pandemic. 16,213 people have signed up to date, uh, Jake. It's not as crazy as it seems. John Gentle says he's probably going to get the COVID-19 virus anyway. He'd rather get it in a controlled setting where he has a guaranteed hospital bed if he needs it. Jake? Well, that's one way to look at it. I think it's pretty selfless. Drew Griffin, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, it's not just your grocery bill that's been going up. The essential items are seeing a price surge. Plus, do airlines owe you a refund? Well, that depends. A look at whether you might qualify. That's next.
You have likely noticed that the cost of groceries has spiked. Prices are up 2.6%. That's the biggest jump in almost 50 years for everyday staples. Eggs are up 16%. Chicken up 5.8%. Ground beef almost 5%. Fresh fish 4.2%. Even baby food is up almost 3%. Let's bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. And Julia, industry experts predicted this when some factories had to close due to sick workers. Is that why prices are up because of the factory closures? For meat prices, absolutely. But there's more to this story. The whole food supply chain was shaken up by the lockdowns and us staying at home more and cooking for ourselves. And the grocery stores just couldn't keep up with the extra demand. Plus, we saw hoarding. So that explains the broad price rises that we're seeing. The key here is that just reopening economies won't fix this overnight. Supply chains take time to adjust. So I think we have to expect higher prices for the foreseeable future. And that, of course, comes at a time when one in five families are food insecure. The timing couldn't be worse. And prices for groceries are up, but it seems like almost everything else is down. Clothes prices are down, airfare, even the price of gas, the price of cars has dropped. But as you know, that's not necessarily a good thing. No, it's not. Cheaper stuff is good when you've got the ability and the money to go out and buy things. The good turns to bad if people hold off from spending because they think they'll get cheaper prices in future. And that can be a downward spiral. That mindset is really critical in an economy like ours where it's spending driven. It relies on consumers being out there and spending. This is just one more thing to watch for policymakers. It can be bad for business and it's also bad for jobs. The fixes here need to be right for those things. All right, Julia Charlie, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Airlines want passengers to feel more comfortable flying, but new memos obtained by CNN show major airline carriers are, are reluctant to enforce the new mandatory face mask policies. And if you don't feel safe, you're not entitled to a refund. CNN's Pete Montine joins me now. And Pete, so what happens if a passenger does not want to wear a face mask, even if the airline says, hey, you have to? Well, all of that, Jake, is outlined in these airline memos that I've obtained over the last day. Airlines can essentially prevent a passenger from boarding if they show up without a mask. But once on board, it is an entirely different story. Flight attendants are now being guided to give gentle reminders to passengers and essentially avoid confrontation at all costs. I want to read you some of the American Airlines memo it's sent to its flight attendants and also to pilots. It outlines some exceptions to this rule for health concerns, but, quote, if the customer chooses not to comply for other reasons, please encourage them to do so, but to not escalate further. Likewise, if a customer is frustrated by another customer's lack of face covering, please use situational awareness to de-escalate the situation. The unanimous message here, Jake, from airlines is do not get in situations where flight attendants have to boot passengers off a flight or even worse, turn an airplane around and land. Airlines are doing all of this in the absence of a requirement from the federal government. Right. In the absence of of leadership, really. United Airlines is an airline trying to keep the middle seats of their planes empty, uh, despite some photos we've seen uh, of crowded flights. What happens if a customer booked on a flight wants a refund? Well, it's important to note that those photos of United flights, according to the airline, are the exception and not the norm. That's what we've been seeing industry-wide as well. United says most of its flights are now less than half full. 
after this whole PR debacle, United actually changed its policy, allowing passengers to rebook if they felt like their flight was too full, also giving them warnings ahead of time, as much as 24 hours ahead of time, and even at the gate. When it comes to refunds, the bottom line is you're not entitled to a refund if you balk on flying because of coronavirus concerns. Jake? All right, Pete, thanks so much. And if you're still planning to keep your European vacation this summer, stick around. A new uh, proposal from the EU that impacts tourists. That's next. In our world lead, the European Union wants to try and save summer vacations. It is proposing a phased and coordinated approach to reopening countries. But the EU warns you will be traveling at your own risk. CNN's Fred Pleitkin joins me now. Fred, the EU wants to open certain borders Mm. so Europeans can go on holiday? Yeah, they certainly do, but they do say that they have to do that in a very responsible way. Of course, normally the borders are open in Europe, but right now most of them are closed. And they say if two countries are going to open their borders with one another, they have to have about the same type of coronavirus situation there. For example, Germany and Austria actually are already easing some of their border restrictions. But right now between Austria and Italy, it simply isn't possible because the situation in Italy is so much worse. At the same time, they also say... Any country that wants to accept tourists has to have adequate capacities as far as ICU beds, for instance, are concerned, if there should be an outbreak so that they would be able to deal with it. And then it actually comes to traveling itself, where they say that's something that will remain very restricted. For instance, vehicles shouldn't have enough passengers, uh, shouldn't have too many passengers in them so people can keep their distance. Masks should be available at any given time. So so should a hand sanitizer as well, just to make sure that people are able to travel in a safe way. And that, of course, is because, Jake, the tourism industry is such a big business here in Europe, and especially the countries that are the hardest hit right now by the coronavirus. You look at the United Kingdom, you look at France, you look at Italy, which is such a beautiful country, and Spain. They're the ones who would really need tourism to also get their economies going again as well. But of course, that can't come at the cost of a possible another outbreak. That's exactly what the EU is saying as well. They're saying they believe that summer holidays can happen, but they also say it has to happen in a safe way, Jake. All right, Fred Pleitkin in Berlin. Thank you so much. Appreciate that report. A staggering UNICEF report predicts an average of 6,000 children under the age of five could die every day, 6,000 a day across the globe in the next six months from preventable causes because of coronavirus-related food shortages and overwhelmed health care systems. CNN's David McKenzie joins me now from Johannesburg. David, 90 percent of these 1.2 million predicted deaths will be children in Africa. Well, that's right. Children and mothers are especially vulnerable here. And it's the indirect causes from COVID-19, Jake, that people are really worried about. This is a UNICEF and Johns Hopkins University study. Now, it's modeling that is looking at the worst case scenarios of those indirect consequences. People, uh, families unable to access food, clinics closed and people stuck in their homes because of lockdown, all of these factors could result in many of these excess deaths, particularly those under five years old. Now, Jake, since the 90s, uh, there's been a huge uh, uh, improvement in under five mortality across the world, especially here on the African continent. Now, UNICEF says those gains could be lost because of the indirect consequences of COVID-19. They say that policymakers look 
very carefully at what the consequences of these lockdowns are on the economy and of health here uh, for people uh, across the continent. Now, 118 countries, mostly low and middle income, were studied uh, in these hypothetical models. They say they are hypothetical, but they come from very real-world experience. I remember we were covering the West African outbreak of Ebola uh, in 2014, Jake, even in that massive outbreak, more people died from other causes like not able to access malaria pills uh, during the Ebola outbreak than Ebola itself. Uh, so some very tough decisions need to be made in the coming weeks, particularly in the African context, on how they combat COVID-19, but also all these other unintended consequences. Jake? All right, David McKenzie in Johannesburg, South Africa. Thank you so much. Coronavirus has now taken the lives of more than 83,000 people in the United States. Three of them were from this one family we're going to tell you about. Leslie Leak lived with her son, John Jr., in Washington, D.C. Daughter E. Nikki lived nearby in Waldorf, Maryland. E. Nikki was 45 years old. She was engaged to be married. Her family thought she'd quickly recover, given that she had no underlying conditions. But she died of coronavirus on April 11th. Her brother, John died two weeks after that. He was the family jokester and known to cook up a few good meals. He was only 44 years old. And then their mother, Leslie, died two days after John. She was the matriarch of the family. She was known for helping others. The family says they're finding peace in God and prayer and knowing that their time together as a family was well spent and full of love. To the Leak family and friends, our thoughts and prayers go with you. May your loved ones' memories be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. Stay healthy. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash country. Max subscription required.